Our scripture reading this morning is from Amos 8, 1 through 14. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies. They're thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell again? And the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy, <clears throat> that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all, and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. <clears throat> and on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning and your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send the famine on the land <laughs> and not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but a hearing of the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. The word of the Lord. Charles Jenkins died last week, an infamous character in American history. It was 1965, and Jenkins sat as a U.S. military officer in the DMZ zone, just on the south side of the border between North and South Korea. The war had ended, but the U.S., of course, was trying to maintain uh, the distance between the North and the South, and at the same time, the conflict in Vietnam was heating up, and more and more uh, U.S. casualties were piling up each month in that area. And Jenkins sat there thinking that he didn't like uh, the place he found himself. He found himself waiting for something to be resolved. He found himself waiting upon a future that he didn't want to pursue. He believed that he would be sent to Vietnam, and he believed that he would perish there. And so weighing his options, on a cold night in January, he downed several beers and walked across the DMZ zone. 
He's one of only four U.S. citizens to defect to North Korea. Now, can you imagine? At the time, this is what Charles was thinking as he thinks back on this decision. He says, I knew or believed firmly that I would be sent to Vietnam and probably die there. So I thought if I could get across the border, I could seek asylum in the Russian embassy. And then I would be traded in a prisoner swap somewhere down the line. And I would end up back on American soil, safe and sound. It wouldn't be pleasant, but I would avoid going to Vietnam. Of course, Jenkins would never touch foot on American soil again. He was held as a prisoner of war. He never made the Russian embassy. He had kind of an odd life. He was eventually conscripted into uh, North Korean propaganda films where he would consistently play the Western villain in these propaganda films. He became something of a, a bit of a movie star within North Korea, apparently. In the early 1980s, the North Koreans had abducted a Japanese woman and forced her to teach English to North Koreans, and they put them in the same house together. They ended up getting married and having two daughters. In 2002, the woman, the Japanese woman and their daughters was, were released to go back to Japan. And in 2004, Charles was allowed to join them. Of course, he never made it back to America, and, and then he just recently died. Imagine, I mean, in that place of waiting, sitting on the, the demilitarized zone, the 38th parallel, and thinking, what are my options? We often find ourselves in a place of waiting, and when we're not liking the place of that waiting, we weigh our options, but sometimes we make such desperately wrong decisions that lead us in a horrible direction. That's the story of Israel that Amos is telling, that Israel has been called to wait upon the promises of God, but in the midst of their affluence, they have decided not to wait well. They've decided to make terrible decisions that's leading increasingly to a terrible outcome. As we consider Amos 8, two things happen as Amos begins to close his book. One is that God's frustration hits a new height. And as a result of that, the opportunity for repentance is really pulled off the table and the description of judgment gets very severe. But there's also a new pinnacle. There's, there's a hint of a new story that will enter in and change the course of Israel to some extent. Not that they won't be punished, but that there may be hope at the end of the day after all. So let's observe several things about our passage this morning. The first thing I want you to observe is the sureness and the harshness of God's judgment. We can't avoid how real that is. As you look at the beginning of Amos 8, it's a little bit, I actually can't read the beginning of Amos 8 without laughing, because in English it's kind of comical, but in Hebrew it's terrifying. It's one of those odd occasions where something just doesn't translate very well. I laugh because uh, it says, the Lord God showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? Amos says, I see a basket of summer fruit. And it seems, it seems very inane. It's just it's like, what's going on? What? In Hebrew, this is what's going on. It's a word play. And the, the Hebrew word for summer fruit is the same as the Hebrew word for the end at the end of verse 2. And the gist is this. Israel, you think you're in a period of great prosperity, you see yourself as a basket of summer fruit, a cornucopia filled up and overflowing. The reality is the only thing you're prosperous in is God's judgment. The only thing your basket is filled with is God's wrath. And that's how you need to hear it because as the wrath is unpacked, the punishment is unpacked. Yes, it is scary. If you scan down uh, in, at the end of verse 2 and then into verse 3, it says, The end has come upon my people. I will never again pass by them. 
The songs of the temple will be turned into wailings. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. It's a harsh, dark, scary image. It's one that we may even, we may even draw back from. Like we worship a God who de- describes himself as love, and then we see him acting towards his people like this. Is this a safe God? Do we really want to be standing very near to a God who treats his people like this? Now, that's a fair question, and we're going to wrestle with it, but before we do, we need to move on a little bit and understand why is God so angry at Israel? What has Israel done to warrant God's wrath? Now, remember, Israel's been rebelling against God's authority for almost 200 years and ignoring all the invitations to come back to him and to have fellowship with him. They've chosen their course, and they've stayed it despite the challenges of the prophets. In verse 4, Amos begins to enumerate some of their sins. In verse 4, we read that they trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. In verse 5, it says, When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale? What is that about? Israel's anxious for their activities of worship to end so they can get on with what they want to be doing, which is making money. It reminded me of my, uh, often my heart sitting in worship growing up thinking, if this would just end, if the, if the worship would be over, I could go home and get on to what I want to be busy about, and instead I'm stuck here. It's a reminder that to be truly engaged in worship is to understand that it's a priority both for God and for us. And if we sit here only distracted and longing for it to be over, then perhaps we're missing what God has to offer to us in the midst of it. Israel, at least, surely was. It goes on to describe these business practices that Israel has been engaged in. It talks about the ephah and the shekel. And what it is saying there in verse 5 is that they're dealing with false balances. If you bring something to an Israelite businessman, Uh, To sell, what he's going to do is use false balances and tell you it weighs less than you think it does. And then if you uh, want to pay someone a certain wage, you're going to use heavier balances to indicate that you're actually paying out more than you really are. You're corrupting the balances, you're fixing the weights of the balances so that you profit no matter what it means for the person with whom you're doing business. And this is why it gets to the point where the, the rich are trying to sell the needy for a pair of sandals and even would seek to sell the chaff of the wheat. Well, the chaff is absolutely worthless. There's no value to chaff. If you're trying to sell chaff, it's a complete scam. But Israel, right? what picture are we getting of Israel? That they are willing to engage any practice in order to make money. As long as their bellies are full and their pleasures are gotten, It doesn't matter if they consume other human beings, particularly their own brothers and sisters, to receive what they want. How ironic that the people of God who were actually called out of oppression in Egypt, favored by God in place of not having anything, and were called out to live differently as they loved and exercised grace toward one another, there are more descriptions, there are more inscriptions in the law of God the law of Moses about how Israel was to treat the poor than there is in any other ancient law code. And here we have Israel rejecting and neglecting all of it and deciding we will just consume 
the poor for our own benefit. It's ridiculously ironic, and it's an irony that I saw a bit this past week, uh, or in the past few weeks, interestingly. You may have seen the sale of Salvatore Mundi, right? the latest uh, painting that is attributed to Leonardo da Vinci. It was a, it's a picture of Christ that comes from the medieval ages and is, is characterized as unspeakably valuable. But what was fascinating about this particular painting is that it went for such an enormously high price. You can actually watch the video of the Sotheby's auction, and the auctioneers are gasping at how high the money is going. Eventually sells for more than twice any other piece of art in the history of the world. It's considered to be incredibly overvalued, actually, in the paying of that price, but it went for $400 million, including $50 million of fees and commissions. So I thought that would be a fun commission to collect. You'd be, you'd think you'd take the rest of the year off, probably, if you just collected a $50 million commission. So uh, there was lots of chatter about the price paid for this painting, but there was one very interesting piece by an ethicist who's actually not a believer, and that, this is one of the reasons that makes it interesting. Not a Christian, in fact, highly secular, would be very critical of Christianity. His name's Peter Singer. He's an ethicist at Princeton University, very prominent and famous ethicist. But he said, he started talking about what does it mean when we pay $400 million for a single painting, and what could you do with $400 million in the world? And Singer actually runs an online calculator that you can go on and use, and it will tell you what you can accomplish in the world with a given sum of money. And so he said, just as an example, with $400 million, you could restore eyesight to 9 million people. With $400 million, you could aid 13 million families to grow 50% more food. And he goes on from there, not only are you making that initial immediate impact, but when you enable a family to grow more food or you return eyesight to someone, there's a ripple effect of good economic consequence because they can then be more productive within their own community. So you can affect monumental change by engaging something like this. And he gets to the end of his essay and he says, you know, how ironic that we're buying a painting, right, a representation of the man who said to the rich man, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. We pay $400 million for this one painting. There's a lot of irony there. He asked at the end of his essay, he says, who wouldn't be happier? Right? Who wouldn't be happier spending $400 million and saying, I restored eyesight to 9 million people or increased food production for 13 million families, no matter how beautiful the painting is? Who's going to gaze at that painting and not feel a little bit worse as a result of not making a better option. He says, it's just common sense and psychological research together would tell you that you're going to be happy, happier making an absolute change in the world. I thought, that's right. And that's a good question. And it's a question the church should be asking and wrestling with even more. Not only wrestling with, but actually being an embodiment of, yeah, we believe this. We believe that in gener being generous... Not only do we store up treasures in heaven, but we actually affect good change in the world to which we're committed in the name of Christ. The irony was further deepened in the past uh, week because it finally became clear who the buyer was of this painting. You know, who's got $400 million to throw around on a painting? Well, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman does, who is the Crown Prince of assuming power in Saudi Arabia. 
Now, the ironic part is that over the last couple of months, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia has spent a great deal of time arresting all of his cousins, who are also royalty within the Saudi family, on the charges of being irresponsible with funds, right? And putting them under house lock, you know, home arrest, and taking their money, right? What he's doing is consolidating power, but he's always run on a ticket that I'm returning the money to the people. That became complicated because last week he bought the most expensive house in the world, which is a $300 million chateau built by Louis XIV in Versailles, France. So I had one CIA analyst to kind of chuckle and say, yeah, it's becoming increasingly difficult to take the crown prince at his word that he's committed to reform when he is lavishly, buying the most lavish things in the world that money can buy. And then I thought, you know, there is such a distance between what he says he's committed to and his political platform, and then the way he spends his money tells a different story. But isn't that true for us? It would say, yes, we follow the man who had nowhere to lay his head. We believe that we should be generous with what we have received because it is not ours in the first place. And yet, does the way we spend our money tell a different story? Does it say that, does it say that we actually believe what we have proclaimed? Or does it say, no, we really are interested in filling our bellies and having our pleasures. And then when that is done, we will think about the poor. And that is a lot like Israel in the period of Amos. Pursuing their pleasures out of their affluence before they would tend the poor in their community. And so it means, I think, for us to learn from the foolishness of Israel and to exercise a degree of wisdom is what? It's to think about and talk about prioritizing our care for those who have less. For you, in your household, at the breakfast table or at the dinner table, to talk about whatever it may be, whether it's a Christmas present out of the CRI Christmas catalog or a gift to the Benevolence Fund or talking about uh, helping people who engage foster care or adoption, whatever the case may be, how can that be an ongoing part of your practice of faithful discipleship? This is what Amos is saying, Israel, you failed miserably in and are receiving God's judgment for. Then would we not want to say, well, let's not go down that road. What would it mean to go down a road that really honors the risen Christ? Now, all of these decisions have really uh, ratcheted God up, to be quite frank. And we see that in verse 7. God is being absolutely sarcastic. Uh, The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, is what he says in verse 7. Now, to swear by the pride, or to swear by anything, right, is a serious business in Old Testament times, but you usually, you swear by something that's very sure. Something that you're saying, as sure as this thing is, that's how sure you can be that I'm going to carry forth on what I'm saying. So when God's really angry, he often swears by his own name. There's nothing more sure than my name, therefore I will carry this out. And here he says, I'm swearing by Jacob's, or Israel's, the names are interchangeable, by Jacob's pride. He's saying, there's nothing more sure right now than Israel's pride. And as, as prideful as you are, you can be sure that I'm going to carry out this judgment. And this judgment takes... An unprecedented nature in verse 11. It is the famine, not of food. God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Boys and girls, this is the famine that I was alluding to during the children's lesson. 
Never before has God, up to this point, has God threatened to withdraw his word. The hearing of his word, which means the prophets will stop to speak. And the books of scripture will cease to be written. And part of this is probably fulfilled in the intertestamental period. Between the ending of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the beginning of the New Testament, there's about 400 years where God is just silent. He doesn't speak to his people. It's in the midst of this silence that God recognized that it recognizes that Israel will be lost because to not have the word of the Lord is to not have light. It is not to have any direction. It is to be left to darkness. And you can see this is the way Israel is described. If you look at verse 12, they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Now, what's really fascinating about this passage, this verse particularly, is notice the directions. From sea to sea is east to west. And then they'll go from north to east. So you've got east to west and north to east. But what are you missing? You're missing the south. What's in the south? Jerusalem is in the south. The true temple is in the south. The one direction where Israel could run to find the word of the Lord and to seek his face by repenting of their distancing themselves from Jerusalem in which they set up their false temples in Beersheba and Dan is the one direction they're not willing to run. So what Amos is saying is what's going to happen is you're going to know you're lost and you're going to be pretending to wander about seeking something, but you're at the same time going to decide that you're not going to wander in the right direction that you would actually find what you're seeking. We do this. It's like a... Imagine a woman who feels, I just feel distant from God. I feel like he's withdrawn his presence from me. And she begins wandering, looking and saying, what do I need to do to restore this relationship? And she decides, I'm disorganized. I don't have things in order. I'm not prioritizing things well. So she goes to Barnes & Noble and she buys a book on organization and a book that tells her to keep things that bring her joy and to throw everything else away. And she starts to order her house. So she knows she's lost. She's wandering and looking for something, but she's decided to wander in the direction where nothing will be found. Right? It's, a, it's a way of actually continuing to avoid God. And this is what Israel is doing and what we have the tendency to do when we would still try to save ourselves rather than to repent and bend the knee to God and draw near to him. And that this is the story of Israel over and over again in the Old Testament and that we recognize that it's the story of us over and over again is, to a degree, a hopeless predicament. Hopeless if we are never truly going to repent and bend the knee and say, yes, every effort I make to save myself and to put my life in order and to patch things up that doesn't drive me to the cross is an effort in futility and vanity. And if we are not going to confess that, then we realize that, to a degree, this is a picture of a hopeless state of God's people. And it's a hopeless state that we participate in if the story does not change to any degree. And this is where, wonderfully and remarkably, in Amos, you begin to see a prophetic note that hasn't really occurred yet, that there is a sub-story, a sub-narrative that will come and swallow up the narrative of God's judgment. And you see it in verse 9. God says, and on that day, the day of the Lord, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. He says it's a day of unprecedented lamentation and sadness and bitterness. 
And at the end of verse 10, he says, I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Now, there is only one day that God brings darkness on the earth at noon. And it is a day of bitter lamentation, of great sadness. There is no sadder day than the day on which Jesus hangs on the cross. Now, the interesting part is that in the Old Testament, who is God's son? It's Israel. Israel is typified as God's son. But when you enter into the New Testament, those passages that are applied to Israel as God's son become applied to Jesus, and Jesus is called God's son. In other words, Jesus takes the place of Israel. He becomes God's true son to hold up the covenant that Israel could never hold up as God's son. And as he takes that role, all of the judgment that's being talked about here in Amos 8 is ultimately going to consume him. It will be a day of mourning for the only son, but it will be God's only son so that our sons and daughters can actually be adopted as true sons and daughters without the same threat of judgment still standing over us because it has been handled in Christ becoming the true son. And the mourning is sure to be God as much as anyone's for it's his son that he loses. Why would you not want to wait for this God? Why would you not want to wait well? To wait on the one who, even in the midst of his frustration, even in the midst of his people in complete rebellion, in the, in the midst of a people who were created to be his representatives on this earth, consuming one another in greed, and saying, I will still bring this story to a good resolution because I will assume the role that I've given to you and that you can't be faithful in, and I will assume the judgment that you cannot bear. There's a parable that Jesus tells at the end of his ministry that I couldn't help but think about as I thought about how Israel has failed to wait well and how we are encouraged to wait well as we sit on the other side in the fulfillment of Amos chapter 8. It's the parable of the ten bridesmaids. It describes a party, a wedding feast that's about to commence. And there are ten bridesmaids waiting with the bride at the bride's house. And in ancient times, basically what would happen is the party would start at the groom's house with the groom's family. And then at a certain point, the groom would proceed to the bride's house, would gather up her family, the bride, her bridesmaids, and they would proceed in a procession, which was kind of like a parade of lights music, dancing, and they would proceed to the place that they were going to get married. Now, the tricky thing is, depending on how fun the groom's party was, you didn't know exactly when the groom was going to show up. When things started to wind down, then they headed to the bride's house. So you have the bridesmaids waiting, and it gets dark, and they fall asleep. And it says there were five wise and five foolish. The five wise bought extra oil for their lamps because they didn't know when uh, the groom would come. And the five foolish didn't buy extra oil and are running out of oil. So the call finally comes. Somebody says, hey, the groom is coming. And they all awaken and they light their lamps right, and prepare for the arrival of the groom. But the five foolish bridesmaids realize we don't have enough oil for the procession. Why don't you share some with us, wise bridesmaids? They say, we can't. We don't have enough. So they have to go buy oil. Well, the groom comes while they're gone. They proceed into the wedding feast. The doors are shut. 
But five foolish bridesmaids come to the door and pound on it and ask to be admitted, and they're denied entrance. They're told to depart, but the groom doesn't really know them. And at the end of that parable, Jesus says to the disciples, how will you be found waiting? It's the question that we read in Amos chapter 8 in Israel's failure, but it's the question we pose to ourselves. How will you be found waiting? Will you learn from Israel's foolishness and walk in faithfulness, or will you be found to not have enough oil? How much oil do you have for your lamps? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your great mercy to us and that you take the role of Israel that we might be redeemed. We thank you that you would suffer the judgment that comes upon Israel, that we would pass through it. I'm not sure that we can fathom the mourning that occurs for the Trinity on the day in which you were crucified. But we give you thanks and pray that we would be, we would be encouraged that if you are the God who would come and rescue Israel in the midst of such rebellion, you are a God worth waiting for and will again come and rescue us. So would you help us to wait well? Would you help us to be nourished in our faith at this table? Would you return to us the joy of our salvation? And would we go forth from here, ordering our lives as those who wait with faithfulness? We ask for your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat>